0: You are now the Bolt Zone. Welcome to the Bolt Zone. This is a competitive Magic the Gathering podcast for The Average Spike, co-hosted by me, Cody DeBose, and the reigning Magic World Champion, Nathan Sawyer. We're bringing you the best tips, tricks, and strategies to improve your game and be a better player. And this week, we have a lot to talk about, starting with Nathan's pro tour, March of the Machine, win. congrats, man, what a tear you've been on.
1: Yeah, it's been sort of crazy seeing myself I mean it's sort of an out of body experience winning tournaments just because for me at least a big part of competing is just everyone has this common goal right everyone is interested in winning the tournament and when you show up even if you are one of the better players in the field it's pretty unlikely that you're going to be able to win a tournament if any the pro, the pro tour is if anything the pro tour is one of the hardest ones to do that at and so Coming straight off of the last Pro Tour Top 8, I was just thinking about I'm, you know, very busy with other life stuff. I'm doing a ton of coaching. I'm working really hard on trying to help other people improve their game. And honestly, my focus has been less on um, my own success as of recently. But for this Pro Tour, I had a fantastic team behind me and getting the desirable result was uh very unexpected which I know sounds weird maybe to other people they're like oh well of course you've been dominating but it was still a shock to myself (laughs)
0: yeah I think you might be the only one thinking that (laughs) uh speaking of the team though congrats to the team as well you guys um had a crazy weekend
1: yeah yeah thanks so much I mean really impressive feat from the team and I really can't say uh, how how vital the the team dynamics are that contributed to such a level of dominance. For those who don't know, we put four people in the top eight of the Pro Tour. And not only that, the uh, number one, two, three, and four seeds were all people from Team Handshake. So that was quite an impressive accomplishment that hasn't been
0: seen since, I believe,
1: Channel Fireball dominated Pro Tour Eldrazi was the last time that I could picture. Um, so Yeah.
0: Yeah, that sounds about right. It's crazy. It's um, really awesome watching you guys run that weekend. So um, in this episode, we're also going to be taking a look back at standard, um, sort of what's working, what's not, and how Aftermath plays into the discussion in the post PT meta. Uh, And then we also got some big standard rotation news to ponder. So we're going to look at that, what this change means to the format and how it will be affected going forward. So before we dive in, uh, we just want to give a few shout outs to our awesome reviewers and new patrons. Thank you so much to everyone that took the time to leave a review on the last episode. We appreciate all your feedback and support so very much. Um, special shout outs to universal Christian Revan, Joey econ World 22 and drummerguy guy 52 for their five-star reviews on Apple podcasts and JJF for leaving feedback on Spotify. Uh, a big welcome to our 142 new followers on Spotify uh, and all of the many listeners who took the time to listen and subscribe on other platforms. Plus, a huge thank you to uh, Giello Jumatoni for becoming a new patron. Hopefully I said your name right, didn't butcher it too bad. Um, we really appreciate the support. We couldn't be doing it without you. Um, so thank you so very much for that. And if you, listener, would like to support the show, you can do so by leaving us a review on your favorite podcast platform or by signing up for our Patreon. We have recently revamped the tiers and rewards in the Patreon, so there are a lot of awesome benefits to check out in there, Um, and you can help keep the lights on here for as little as a dollar a month for the same low, low price as a playset of Change the Equations. You can support several hours of the best competitive MTG content around. So if you want to check out our Patreon and support the show, the link is in the show notes for this episode. All right, so with that out of the way, let's dive right in. Um, So the Pro Tour... Uh, Nathan you played uh, a Rakdos mid-range list um, and really a big theme we saw for the weekend um, was mid-range slugfest and people trying to go over the top of it um, so what kind of drew you guys into Rakdos and specifically I guess the build um, that you guys played with you know four invokes classically the Chandra's plus the light of the night What what sort of drew you in that direction compared to some of the other decks that we saw
1: Right. So in order to answer this question, I think we have to take a step back into what the format looked like before the uh, the Pro Tour and the regional championships in, the, in San Diego leading into it. Yeah, I mean, if you look
0: at these two tournaments, they're like totally different.
1: <laughs> right, right. What we saw there and what we covered uh, prior to this was the success of um, red, black, and also Esper midrange being the deck of choice going into the tournament that many people were interested in. That's what I played at the tournament and what I thought was the best choice. And seemingly a big factor that represented the disappearance of Esper was the lithomantic barrages in every red, black list sideboard. And going into it, you might be thinking, well, we, we have plenty of one mana removal, we have cut downs, we have go for the throats. Yes, it's a good one-mana removal spell. It answers Raphine cleanly. Um, It answers Thalia and Skrelv. And the big thing here is not only does it do this job well, but it means that you can play an abundance of one-mana answers. So it's not that the Lithomantic Barrage is necessarily an excellent card. When you get six copies of one mana removal spells, it's really hard to not draw multiples in the stages of the game where you need to have these answers. And it makes Dahlia less of an automatically I win because my opponent's too far behind card like it priorly was. Um. Right. And so that kind of covers why we think we why we thought that the red black deck improved a sizable amount. And additionally, like you were saying, people were trying to go over the top of these smaller black-red mini decks, sort of similar to the shell that we registered, actually, which fit into the category of smaller black-red. We didn't have Breach the Multiverse. We didn't play Atali. Right, right. We, we did play Chandra, which not every black-red list played. And I'm sure everyone wanted to talk about the flashy Light Up the Night, which went into the deck as, like, a, this card looks kind of weird on paper. You have to read it pretty thoroughly to realize that it's actually a combo card designed to flashback with chandra and so for those who don't know how this works if you play chandra with eight mana when you cast it and a light up the night in graveyard you can plus two chandra to add two mana and then remove seven loyalty counters from chandra and so you can actually remove every single loyalty counter on it you don't have to leave one of on the planeswalker because it is an as it's cast ability so the additional cost to casting it is removing the counters and so as the light up the night is put on the stack the chandra still sees the light up the night as it's being cast and copies it, which means you can deal up to 14 damage on that turn to a player or to two things. Um, But this was a big deal for a few reasons, because when you, when you see what the other going over the top decks are, and we'll cover those a little bit more in depth, these slower white based mid range decks actually really struggled to close out the game. And so having access to a one of some of team handshake played two, as an aside, I chose to play one. Um, having access to this card that automatically wins the game when you get to a late game spot and you've pressured your opponent just very little is really vital because you end up looking at a lot of cards the pace of the game is quite slow and we recognized pretty quickly that you actually could just hold chandra until you found light of the night in a lot of situations to avoid ossification so a brief explanation of sort of the that tech card and um The other thing to cover for how we decided to not go fully over the top with these big threats is we had duresses in the main deck. And one thing you'll notice is we actually went down on copies of Graveyard Trespasser. We only played two copies of Graveyard Trespasser. With the idea being for these two changes that we felt for various reasons that Trespasser was the weakest card in certain games in the mirror, whereas every other card was more flexible and could often be utilized for a reasonable exchange, the Trespasser had spots where it was just quite bad in the mirror match. And duress is basically just the concept of we wanted to pre-board our deck. We thought it was quite good against the metagame at large and particularly the most important card in the mirror for taking Fable and Bankbuster. Um, and so you also get two sideboard slots, which is another principle that is super vital for your deck building, which is how can I make myself have access to more effect by moving cards that are good in the sideboard to the main deck? basically making a metagame call. So that's my explanation of some of the sp- specifics of the red-black deck. Uh, what are your thoughts, Cody?
0: Yeah, I think it's a super sweet list, and, and moving the duress to into the main and trimming on the trespasser, obviously it played out as a really smart decision. I think it's one that a lot of people probably overlooked, just you know, trimming on a creature that is generally pretty strong in a lot of matchups in trespasser, and swapping it out for duress just kind of feels a little weird but when you look at it and you look at the meta and and like you said, in the mirror match, um, which I'm sure you guys were expecting a lot of, um, that's a super sweet call. So that's awesome. And then Light of the Night is just one of those cards that, you know, it feels like it's been begging to be broken for a while now. And um, that combo with Chandra is, is really awesome. I'm wondering... Uh, at this point, what other iterations of Rakdos do you think we can see? Because you know, we thought we were done. Or we thought we were done with Grixis, and then and then Ractos popped up, and now we have three versions of Rakdos running around. Um, so, do you think that there's further room to grow, sort of, with the card pool we have now? Do you think we're kind of stuck where we are with these versions?
1: So, let's go over the specific cards that we saw that might make an impact in these black red mirrors. Um, breach plus big score was something that people tried to do to go over the top of the mid-range mirrors. My criticism, so I'll go over the cards and I'll talk about what might be good for them, might might be wrong. My criticism of it is it may be a way to get an edge in the pre-board games, but if people's edge in the pre-board games in, is to have duresses, it actually stops that from being a huge edge anymore because big score individually is a pretty weak effect to have in hand. If you don't get to cast it on a clear turn, And have a stable board. You can fall too far behind when you cast that effect. And if you don't have the payoff you're looking for. It's also quite weak. Um, But undeniably casting Breach. When players have Chandra's and Shieldred's. Is a huge way of getting ahead. So Breach is something that fits that description. Itali has some issues as well. 7 mana is pretty hard to get to. Unless you've traded off resources. And so my focus has mostly been on. I want to have a strong foundation for the early games and have an advantage. And once you're ahead in the black-red mirrors, Atali doesn't always catch you up from behind. It can sometimes. It's a swingy card. But um, these cards are good. I'm just not sure how much of an edge it gives you in the mirror versus where you're sacrificing percentages in the matchups where you have to be a little bit leaner and have a cheaper curve. Um, Clearly, there's... A few other ones that people are doing like Phyrexian Flesh Gorger, which mm-hmm. is a cool one. That's actually an alternative to Graveyard Chessmaster that is quite hard to answer. It's not that the stats on the card are excellent, although Menace and Life Link is good at racing. And um the the other thing is you can't really kill it with the commonly removal commonly played removal spells. uh A braid is at a premium in the mirror. You want to use your braids on Bankbusters. So for every time you play a Flesh Gorger and your opponent has to trade in a braid for it, it's one less bankbuster that they're gonna have an answer for later. Right, right. And, and you just have this seven mana mode, which a seven five life linker demands an answer. Um, that's not a card that you can race. That's a card that you you need to get off the board. And so we're looking at just invoke despair and a braid in the most commonly played list unless people start playing Infernal Grasp, which is the next level, um, in terms of how can I answer this threat. I think that it's a big issue to um, to try to tune your deck to to answer this specific one. And so these are like the general ways that I would move. I would move towards Frixion Flesh Gorger, more duresses in the main, cut down on aggro cards and put those cards in the sideboard. Effectively saying that aggro players are going to struggle in this metagame, and I don't have to be the one to pay them respect. Other people can do my job for me and let me sure. have the edges in the matchups that I care about, which are the mid range mirrors
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense um it's interesting you brought that up one thing i wanted to touch on uh as far as aggro goes and and we sort of mentioned it already uh talking about lithomantic barrage but Esper legends had uh, a horrid time at the pt win rate just 42.3 percent um but by contrast we actually saw soldiers doing pretty well and there's uh sort of change in the deck that we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, It also did well in the the challenges this past weekend. But do we think that people um, might be able to move away from the leaner build of soldiers, or I'm sorry, moving away from the leaner build of of these Varactos decks and um, sort of beefing up, like you said, and trimming on some of that cheap removal? Do we think it'll leave an opening for something like soldiers or another aggro deck to make a resurgence? Or at this point, do we feel like those decks are pretty boxed out?
1: I mean, the metagame is going to ebb and flow a bit, and if people don't respect the aggro decks to a large enough degree, then those decks have room to take over. What I find interesting is that it's actually a very tough decision to pull the trigger on registering one of these aggro decks. If, if you're yeah. trying to like game theory it, which is the approach that I take it from, it's actually a situation where you need to expect the majority of the Rakdos players to move away from the... The leaner builds, the more removal dense builds, in order for this to be a good choice, because the reality is that if half the Rakdos players are to move towards a good build, that's like a good build, I say, like a more grinding mid range focused build, like I've been sure. advocating for, and the other half stay on this leaner version, then I don't know if that's good enough for the aggro deck. If if that's the case, I mean. We, you did mention that the, um, that the Soldier's deck had a pretty good win rate at the Pro Tour. One thing to note is that the sample size was kind of small and it did well against everything except for Red-Black. It still struggled versus Red-Black significantly. I believe it had an 18% win rate versus Red-Black in the tournament. Yeah, and just so, a bad matchup. Yeah, I, I, I do think we could talk a bit about what new changes have happened, though, like you were mentioning, to make maybe the Soldier's deck a little more resilient.
0: Yeah, I think so. There's been two kind of bigger changes, I think, worth noting. Um, One of which being moving away from just an all-in token go-wide strategy towards more of a flashy um, counterspell version with like Zephyr Sentinel um, and then some various counterspells. And then also um, the new card Knight Errant of Eos, just giving the deck, you know, ability to grind a little bit, convoke those creatures and just refill its hand in some of those longer games um you know i think that combination does sort of help it against the cheap interaction like the themantic barrage um whereas before you know it dumps its hand and just everything gets removed and it can't do anything whereas now it has a little bit of a chance to kind of refill and and stick in the game um and then the flash build just being able to to dodge some of the removal and and play um around some of the other threats seems pretty decent
1: right something to be aware of as a player if you were to bring red black to a tournament is Game plan-wise, versus Soldiers, it might be tempting to try to just have as many removal spells as you can and kill all of the creatures that they present and one-for-one one them until you land a Shield or something else and you win. However, this might not always be the most effective approach, because with the introduction of something like uh, the Knight, uh, Aaron of Eos, or other cards to grind, and just in general... You kind of want to set your deck up. Zephyr Sentinel is another one that invalidates some removal. You kind of want to set your deck up such that you can pressure your opponent as you're playing removal spells. If you're putting them on the defensive, you're actually creating a situation where they can no longer just chip you down for a few points, you kill something. Chip you down for a few points, you kill something. And this is where, where the strength of something like Reckon or Bankbuster lies because you get to turn your removal spells into more than just a one-for-one exchange because you buy the time and the life points to draw cards, Um, a pretty underrated thing. One thing I was doing with sideboarding in this matchup in the Pro Tour Top 8 was I was actually cutting some number of abrades or other go-for-the-throats removal from my deck in order to make sure I got to maintain max numbers of bankbusters. I kept a few copies of Invoke Despair, which might turn some heads. Um, as my opponent had Takashi as welcome as a way to grind you really just have to anticipate how they're going to adapt because most of the time they're going to have to slow down and you're also going to want to speed up your interaction so sometimes meeting in the middle here is what you want to do in terms of having these card advantages pressuring their battlefields and ultimately putting them behind
0: yeah it's super interesting that you mentioned Bankbuster and that being one of like the good cards you want in the matchup. Cause I think a lot of people sort of default to pulling that out because it's, you know, too slow or you don't want to spend your whole turn drawing cards, not killing stuff. But um, that is a really interesting philosophy. Do, um, could you talk some more about that and just how you view bankbuster mm-hmm. in that matchup or against aggro in general, I guess.
1: So I feel that, This applies to two main decks that we're talking about, to be clear Esper Legends and Soldiers. And on the Soldiers front, which I think is maybe a little bit trickier to see, you tend to end up in situations where your opponent passes with counter spells up and maybe some number of flash threats as the default version. And when you're in situations where your opponent's producing one or two tokens on the ground and a Lord and other ways of just generating board presence, You are going to have to kill them with removal, but you have a finite number of answers, and your threats can be quite inefficient. Like, um, for example, this is a matchup where Fable is not excellent if you're slightly behind, Um, which isn't quite intuitive because Fable's just the best card in the deck in in most other matchups. Um, Ultimately, what I see is I can maintain a level of resources with Bankbuster that lets me trade off one for one and and then I'm gaining some and, and most of the time people just keep all the removal and their hand has no way of getting ahead. They're just trading off resources and hoping they top deck better. So you need to have these cards that let your mana development as they have a lower land count succeed and ultimately get you ahead as the later stages of the game come on. You're not inherently favored in later stages of the game. In other words, you have to make your deck building such that you have that edge
0: yeah that's super interesting and uh, another point that a lot of people probably don't pick up on right away is just that you're not favored automatically later in the game just because your deck is the mid-range deck, you know, and you can't assume that you are. So that's a really good point. Uh, Speaking of decks favored later in the game, another one I want to talk about that did well at the PT and that has uh, had a bit of a a surge this week is the five-color, four-color ramp deck um, centered around Atraxen, Atali. um, But notably, we have Invasion of Zendikar um, as a strong four-drop, helping it uh, sort of bridge from that mid-to-late game. Um, I know you played against this in the top eight, right? Right. right. Yeah. So uh, what are your thoughts on this and its place in the meta? Do we think that it can stick around? Do we think um, you know, that this is what might unseat Red Black as the top? Or is it just uh, the spicy fun stuff?
1: I mean, I think that the deck certainly is much better than the quantity of players playing it at the Pro Tour suggests. I feel that it does have a reasonable matchup against red black it's also quite an exploitable deck and if people were to play grixis or some other deck with counter spells then the deck would struggle a lot i it doesn't really have much ability to adapt uh, given that the deck list is very firm you don't even sideboard very many cards when you're playing this deck so your main deck ends up very similar to what your deck looks like in Saber games, with the exception of Aggro matchups where it has the red removal, and Sunfalls. So what I see is red-black decks are going to move towards more duresses. The baseline percentage of red-black versus these ramp decks uh, can only be so low, as in the floor maintains probably somewhere around forty to forty-five percent, mm-hmm. because the the mana issues of the ramp deck are prevalent. It does need to draw invasions. It does need to draw Topiary Stompers, and casting these seven drops uh, is not trivial. So, I mean, if I were a red-black player and I were to tell you what can you do to be better against the ramp, you have to mulgan very aggressively. Your two drops are a high priority, and you need to make sure that you're being proactive in these early turns, and then you're trying to duress somewhere around turn three or their turn four to snipe invasions when you get a chance. And then later in the game, what you're fighting for is you're trying to make sure a herd migration doesn't resolve, and you can sometimes just one-for-one one Atraxa or kill a and whatever it produces, in order to get some final points of damage. So this is the quintessential I'm the Burn deck, and take that role and assume it as you uh, have a lot of tools to Chandra them out and invoke them out in the late game. Otherwise, the domain deck has been successful, so we'll see. I mean, it put four people in the top four of the last challenge, yeah um, this past weekend and people are going to have to adapt their decks so i think the metagame is in a very healthy spot given that this deck exists and i think it's good for the format
0: yeah i agree i think uh having something like this kind of pop up and forcing people to adapt to it is going to be a good thing overall uh it does feel like you know it's in a sweet spot right now before people maybe catch up to it maybe got another week or two in it before we start seeing a lot of changes so uh it's definitely an interesting deck i'm looking forward to trying it out this week um But speaking of other decks, uh, kind of getting a facelift, um, mono white, we saw over the course of the last season of RCs, this was a big player, um, took down a few, was consistently posting top results. Um, in our standard episode a few weeks ago, we talked about how uh, it struggled to close out games and how that's still true. So what we've been seeing in the last couple of weeks and we saw a bit at the Pro Tours players splashing into either black or red um, looking for big finishers. So in the black, the black white versions, we saw breach the multiverse as a finisher. And then the black red versions, we see people splashing for a Tali uh, and then as well as Fable just because you can and you're in red. It's interesting. I'm wondering if this deck getting these changes is going to be enough to keep it competitive cuz cuz the actual just like true mono white deck has has really fallen off in the last couple of weeks.
1: Right. I think it's well said that the mono white version is generally going to be accepted as not the ideal version going forward, especially especially with late up the night going around um, after this past pro tour. That card single-handedly probably gives you 10% in the matchup game one, in my experience, it's a large number just because drawing it at some point when they can't kill you can't just match up a lot. Um, I feel most people are going to probably move towards Autumn Burgett's, uh top four version with Duress in it and Breaches in the main deck. I feel that this version makes the most sense to me conceptually as from a deck building standpoint because it alleviates the tension of the previous version where you would be able to stabilize the board and get into a place where you were objectively favored, but, and you had a lot of removal, but you had no way of closing the door and going over the top of your opponent. So if they played some sort of haymaker that your hand was awkward against, you could often lose after you're winning the game for 10 turns or something. That's a problem. When you're winning the game for like five, six, seven turns, and then you start losing because your opponent produces one scary threat, that points to some big deck issues. And I think that this black version uh, recognizes that issue and has decided that, you need to play something that really goes over the top. Atali does do this, but Atali is answerable by common removal. You don't normally have a ton of great go for the throat targets. And the cards you can produce are uh pretty high variance just because of the nature of the cards. So Absolutely
0: Yeah, I think it's yeah. very interesting and you mentioned Autumn's so list from the PT. Looking at that sideboard, you know, almost Over half the cards uh, have black in them. So although the main deck splash for black is is very small, which is to breach the multiverse, that sideboard giving you a lot of options. You got to rest, cut downs. The kicker off of Archangel of Wrath is awesome. Uh, Shoulders eat it, go for the throat. Um, All those options seem pretty strong. And I I agree with you that of of the two splashes, the the, uh, black white version seems stronger than the red splash. So it'll be interesting to see how this archetype uh, evolves as well see if right. we have another uh, another go big deck with it so right. um, I think right. that's that's the biggest of the changes we've seen out of the standard meta um since the p t or at the p t uh anything else you wanted to touch on uh specifically before we start talking about some aftermath
1: no not particularly I mean one thing I'll reiterate is that I do feel the meta game is in a particularly healthy spot, and I would encourage people playing standard to not feel like oh, BlackRide is just this huge dominating force after this event. Everyone's playing Fable. There's no way of escaping from the, the feedback loop of, oh, well, we have Fables and Blood Tides, and every deck needs to build their deck to to beat that or be a part of it. Because my thoughts on it are, this isn't necessarily a bad thing, which I won't go too deep on, but I think it's interesting to consider, like, actually, there's a lot of variables that go into the equation, a lot of ways you can build your decks. And two, we have found decks that are doing well against it. And so, I would I would be cautious about people chanting for bans super aggressively at this point. And I just wanted to mention that since I've heard some chatter on Twitter and, and other places in social media that are suggesting bans are necessary.
0: Definitely, and we'll talk about that more uh, in just a bit as far as bans go. But but I agree. I think that the meta is healthy, and you know, I think part of it probably is just. You know, people are tired of seeing Fable and, and Blood Tithe Tharvistur together. You know, they've been around some of the longest cards in the meta. Um, so that might just be part of it. But if you are looking at the meta game as a whole and not just sort of game the game, there is a lot happening in a lot of ways to, to attack this meta right now, so. Our next segment is brought to you by Boogie Board, the ultimate LCD life Boogieboard's Boogie Board's patented reusable writing surface allows you to track life totals and jot down quick notes during casual or competitive play. Never worry about ruining a notebook in your bag or running out of paper mid game again. After taking down your opponent, just press the button to clear and you're ready to start over. Boogie Board's best-selling Jot tablet offers plenty of writing surface, while the Jot Pocket is perfect for tighter playing spaces. Boogie Board is available at friendly local game stores across the country and at major retailers. Learn more at myboogieboard.com/games. That's myboogieboard.com/games. Never start a match without your Boogie Board.
1: Let's get into the aftermath cards. I'm excited to hear your thoughts. Yeah, let's on that do it. Game.
0: So this set um, is a small set. There's uh, 50 cards. um will be interesting to see sort of the overall reception of it. There's um, a lot of chatter online about sort of the pricing of it and and how it was rolled out and and all that. Um, Not to mention the story, which we aren't getting into. Um, But there are a few cards worth discussing, I think for standard. So uh, I have, five of them written down that we can kind of just run through and uh, share some quick thoughts over. Um, so first off is Calyx guided by fate. So this is an enchantment focused creature um, also showing off the new legendary creature um, re-template of the Planeswalkers um, so to say. But I think this could be interesting. We've seen the green white enchantment in standard as an archetype um, that once was seeing quite a bit of play now it's sort of on the fringes um but it does seem like it has a pretty decent matchup into the black red base decks um and this card can just generate a ton of value on its own um especially with some of the new enchantments that we've also gotten recently any thoughts on this one
1: the card is really strong the second ability on the card is quite strong um it also just has really good stats i mean it's a 3-3 three, three that has this very good ability, or it's a 2-2 two, two that puts a counter on something else. Um, it seems to play really well with something like Audacity. That's um, yeah. what I was thinking about. Just some way of putting a cheap enchantment on something. I could see a shell uh, supported by this card performing really well if it just has one or two more pieces. I think that the last you know, four to eight cards in the current green-white shells are just not that great and so we'll see if a new set produces something that uh puts it over the top and makes it quite good but currently i feel that it uh, is really promising
0: yeah the potential is definitely there so we'll have to keep an eye on on our enchantment suite um next we have sarkhan soul of Flame. so it feels like there has been for a few sets a pretty decent dragons deck brewing um but just like the enchantments the pieces are just not quite there yet um so maybe with the extended standard we'll see that happen any thoughts on sarkhan
1: i mean i i don't know if we have enough of the good dragons that want this card being played i think that uh this card cards of this Uh, sort of effect tend to not end up being that good in standard just because they don't produce an immediate ability um, when they come into play and that's kind of the litmus test for a lot of cards in standard which is like when you play this card if it trades down for a rule spell how good or bad is it i think this card doesn't really snowball an advantage either so i would say for top level competitive decks i would be skeptical that this makes a large wave but we we could always see some meta game where just having a sort of way of making your dragons cheaper and mana produ- production
0: um is super helpful to ramping out five drops because i don't see many other effects like that yeah definitely again that's one of those we're waiting on waiting on pieces for it um but a next one and a, the next one is one that we're not necessarily waiting on pieces for but more waiting on um Meta to support this color uh, is Tranquil Frillback. So, this is a super solid green body um, that has relevant as- effects stapled onto it. Um, unfortunately, right now, we're not seeing a lot of green in the meta, so it doesn't really have a great home. Um, but if it does, you know, a, a 3 3 for 3, um, being able to, to destroy an artifact or enchantment, exile a graveyard, or gain 4 life right off the bat for 1 extra green um, per for effect seems pretty strong
1: yeah i could see some shell even with the ramp deck where you'd want this depending on what other decks pop up um right now there's not enough pressing artifact or enchantments or graveyard things i think the gain life mode is also good against aggro decks So all the modes are applicable um it's just not really what the format um currently like the, the top green decks, like you were saying, the only green deck really to exist doesn't need this effect. And right, so right. maybe if more green decks were successful, they'd play it as sort of a substitute for Loran that also has aggro applications.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I have to imagine that if we do at some point get a good green deck that this will be in it. hmm Yeah. All right, uh, so next is Urborg Scavengers. Uh, so this looks like it could be a decent alternative to Graveyard Trespasser. Obviously, it's a bit of a different effect. Um, if the Reanimator Piles and decks kind of stick around, you know, you have some ability to kind of go crazy with keywords. Um, do we think that's enough? Do we think, you know, the Graveyard ability plus picking up some keywords is enough to make this strong?
1: I mean, It's really good against the tracks. I was thinking about that the other yeah. day. <laughs> If you're hitting a track, so you're you're doing quite well. Um, you know, one big issue I see is the competition is pretty stiff for the three-drop black sure. slot. Um, like we've talked about already, it could be better than Graveyard Trespasser. It does a similar thing. You have to evaluate if the added abilities and the growth of it uh, outweighs the ward discard ability, because oftentimes the strength of Trespasser is that if they want to go for the throat, it as the common most played removal spell in the format. You have to discard a card. With this card, right. if you go for the Throat, it's actually quite a bad exchange. And with friction and Gorger, we've talked about as another black 3-drop, you can't actually go for the Throat, that one. So it depends on what the value is of the, the growth um, and what the commonly played spells are. Right now, I don't know if it makes more sense than, um, than the stock 3-drops, but yeah. we'll see
0: over time. The ward abilities definitely right now feel like they're just too good to pass up. But if we do see the removal sweet shift, I, I could see it being good. Um, all right. And last on the list from Aftermath is Coppercoat Vanguard. Um, so this one is is pretty interesting to me. I'm wondering if this could be the card that kind of brings out a new archetype. We know Agro is struggling right now, so maybe not. Uh, but it could be decent. Um so basically, giving every other human you control plus one plus O and ward one, um, we just talked about ward being strong, and we already have a decent number of humans in the format right now, and now they have a lord to go with them. Um, so the question, I guess, is, can a human's deck in standard be better than soldiers? My gut feeling right now is probably not. Um, but again, it feels like another piece or two could make this archetype really scary.
1: Right. I see this as a card that's more likely to make waves in Pioneer, if anything, where humans is a more supported archetype. There's not enough humans right now, and we have the Soldier Lord, and it seems like Wizards wants to support soldiers as the common theme. So I I hope to see this in Pioneer, but I don't think it'll be in Stater anytime soon right now, realistically.
0: Yeah, that's fair. And I think in Pioneer, it definitely will slot in there. Um, And, you know, there are some other cards from Aftermath that... um, feel like they'll be able to slot in the Pioneer, but right now we are just going to focus on Standard, Um, and that brings us to our next topic. So we got the announcement during the Pro Tour, um, came as a pretty surprising piece of news to people, but we are having a change to how sets rotate out of Standard. So now instead of every two years rotating out, sets will be in Standard for three years. So right now that means that Crimson Valve, Midnight Hunt, Neon Dynasty, and New all dodge the rotation hammer and get an extra year in the format. So with uh, this fall's release, which will be Wilds of Eldraine, we won't have rotation like we were expecting. And then those four sets that we just named will rotate out next fall. Um, So that'll push them to three years. And then starting from there, every set will just go three years. Uh, So this is according to Wizards, it's part of a larger plan to revitalize the format and support paper standard play at local game stores. Um, and again, I think that the, the larger plan uh, will tell a lot because we don't know exactly what that plan is right now beyond um, extending rotation. But before we get into any more details, what are your immediate thoughts on on lengthening out the format and slowing down rotation? I mean, I think it's a
1: great thing. The biggest criticism that people have of standard is that they don't get to play their cards for that long and they don't want to invest in deck because the the consumer trust is at a very low point. And so two arguments you can make here that I see are one, actually, this makes it worse because if they're going to have uh, sets rotating out this slowly, that means that bans are going to have to take place more frequently in order to accommodate the power level disparities that pop up. I don't have a good response to that. I think that's a valid criticism of it that we'll see if Wizards or specifically Huey, Jensen in charge of uh, the organized play can fix or try to alleviate with some sort of consumer confidence. Um, And the other thing that I see is the strength of it will be that this lets people approach it more similarly to Pioneer where decks Mm -hmm. actually do get better and worse. But uh, the, the standard format is going to have a longer expiration date, and so people can buy their decks and play with it. And so you're paying for the time that you get to play with it more. So then your cards are not always going to be good. There will be staples in a standard, and the format can actually be a higher power level because there's more sets in it. Which means that maybe cards that are staples in standard will be able to be ported over to Pioneer. And that's a big thing that works well for it, which is with a stronger format. That just means simply that we get to have these staples not depreciate in value, which I see is just the thing that wizards and the community wants. They want to be able to play their cards. They want to be able to buy their cards and know their cards are not going to be worth zero in a month. Right. Um. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like you said, I think it really is an interesting two-sided issue because on one hand, you're going to get to play your cards longer on the other. We don't know how this is going to affect sort of the band schedule and, and the cadence of bannings and, how long you'll be able to play your card, so... Um, it'll be definitely interesting to hear, and I think we're supposed to hear this week um, some more about that. So we'll we'll have an update on the next episode if there's anything noteworthy. Um, there was some chatter in the the Wizards Discord during a Q and A um, that said quote ensure uh, that Watsy plans to ensure banning's banning events will not be on a less predictable cadence. Um, so it sounds like we are going to be going back to um, having set dates, you know, ahead of time for bans and sort of letting people know that something's coming before it actually happens instead of just randomly springing it. So sort of going back to to how it was before. um, Do you think that's a positive change? Because I I think that, you know, at least knowing that a ban is coming is better than just it coming out of nowhere.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's better to know something is going to happen than not people like, you know, ignorance is bliss in some ways. Like if you don't know a ban is coming, you could just either speculate or just be like well i can't control it so i'm just going to make decisions and not think about it but realistically if we know a ban is a month out it is better for people to know not to buy a certain deck that they think could be banned at that time right and even if it maybe hurts wizards bottom lines or it hurts consumers because the card they thought was going to get banned didn't get banned and they didn't get to play for a month re- realistically it's probably for the best and i always preferred that system since i've been playing magic
0: Yep. I agree. Um, so I guess the next thing to talk about, you, you mentioned that we're going to see, you know, a higher overall power level just because we have a bigger card pool. Um, so I guess this could also go two ways in that, you know, having a higher power level and more cards available can kind of open the door for new archetypes to thrive, or it could just make the good ones we have now better with better cards. Um, Right now, how do you see that going just based on our card pool we have now?
1: It's an interesting question. I think that we could mostly expect that the current card pool... There's a lot of very powerful cards. We have Shieldred and Fable, like we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, I expect Wizards to lean into that a little more and print cards that are more applicable for Pioneer power level. I think it's fine to have the best cards in the format be a little above like um, what we've seen in the past, but I mean, we've seen where this gets out of hand, and so it's a fine line. I really hope that the play design team at Wizards can find a good balance, but it's just um, unavoidable that when there's more sets introduced, the overall power level of the format is higher. It doesn't necessarily mean that the individual cards in the set have to be more powerful, just that with more cards, decks get better, um, assuming deck builders are building well, and I expect that trend
0: to play out in the future yeah definitely and uh especially looking at another eldraine set coming up we'll have to see if they juice the power level again with that um i think that one other thing worth mentioning is yes you'll be able to play your cards for longer in standard now um but do players actually find that attractive enough to buy into a paper standard deck if they're not heading to an RC or something like that because you know right now beyond the sort of RC structure and the RCQ season that'll be happening for you know a third of the year whenever we roll around a standard season there's not really a whole lot of incentive beyond that to play paper standard at least you know in my area um, you know we have one store that plays standard and beyond that you can't find you know a standard event anywhere in paper so do we think that this right. change is going to lead stores to? Pick up on standard again. Personally, I think that there's going to have to be something else, some other incentive from Wizards to encourage paper standard play just beyond the RCs.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, Pro Tour is a good start if you can get uh, a competitive, invested player base. The stores meet the demand of the players, not the other way around, from my experience. If players come to the store and say, look, us eight want to play standard every week. Will you support us playing this tournament? Great. And then more people see those people playing and join in in the event. And I see that these high-level competitive tournaments do bring a lot of people to be like, oh, standard's cool right now. I want to learn more about it and I want to play. And that's awesome. But they have to continually support the events and they have to make sure that the format is appealing and they have to make sure that player consumer confidence is high. So We'll see. I, I agree with you. It might not be enough right now, but I hope that they can make some positive changes in that direction in the future.
0: Yeah, I agree. Cause, you know, like we've said this whole episode, it is a fun format right now and and people just don't really have a chance to play it in paper. You know, arena's sort of a different story, but with the hype of like the PT you know, after, you know, watching that event all weekend and being excited about the decks and the meta, and then you turn around and, and you can't go play paper standard with your friends somewhere. It is kind of disappointing. So hopefully we'll see that change and hopefully, um, this change to rotation is going to be a good thing. We will uh, have to see the verdict will be out. We'll have another look at pioneer um, a little more specifically in the next episode to prep for Dallas. Um, But until then, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the bolt zone. If you enjoy the show, please give us a follow and leave a review on the podcast platform of your choice. We read every review and love to hear from you. If you want to help support the show, consider subscribing to our Patreon. You can find the link in the show notes and thank you again to boogie board for their sponsorship. So until next time, get out there and sling some bells.